Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Lord Most High, we ask that you would draw our hearts and minds into those truths of your greatness, of your glory, and of the, of the wonder of Jesus sent to redeem us. We pray in his name, amen. And you may be seated. I would encourage you to turn back to that Genesis passage, Genesis chapter 12. That is the main passage we're going to focus on this morning, though we will come back to the Luke passage and a few others as we make our journey through Scripture this morning. It is definitely beginning to look a lot more like Christmas out there as well as in here. I see some more Christmassy type sweaters and the, the Christmassy colors are starting to come out. It's a good thing. We're progressing closer each week to remembering Jesus' advent, remembering his coming, uh, refreshing our minds about that. And, and really when we do that during Advent season, we're, we're sort of putting ourselves uh, back in the place of God's people in, uh, at the beginning of Scripture. As we read the story of God's uh, redeeming work through Scripture. It's one story, right? It's one continuous story, and we're going to talk about that this morning. But there are definitely two halves to the story. It's why we have an Old Testament and a New Testament. And you know that right, right at the center, the centering point that transitions us from the, the Old Testament or the Old Covenant to the New is the coming. It's the advent of Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. And so it's, it, we can't, on, on this side of Jesus' arrival, uh, we, we can't sort of pretend that we were never on that side. But in Advent and through uh, the worship services that we have and the messages that we'll preach and hear, we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to go back there. And we're trying to remember what it was like to anticipate the coming of a Savior. And so last week when we went all the way back to Genesis, third chapter of Genesis, the first hint of Christmas in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 15. And by the time you get only to 3.15 in the Bible, two and a half chapters into the Bible, you have basically the essential storyline of the entire uh, Scriptures set for us. And that storyline is this, that there's a great, great struggle, a great conflict being waged against God and His people by a sinister, deceptive enemy. A conflict in which a promised seed of the woman, a human hero, is going to achieve a decisive victory over God's enemy and going to restore all of creation to the way that God intended it to be in the very beginning when it was paradise and all things were right and God's people were living in God's place, living under God's rule, enjoying his blessing. That, that's the storyline of the Bible. And by the time we're to Genesis 3, verse 15, the, the entire storyline, the entire plot of the story has been set. And everything that happens after that is going to contribute to working out that story through the Bible. And so you have this, the plot of God's story set. And you have that the setting is set, this unfolding drama of redemption and restoration of the entire cosmos is going to take place here on planet Earth. And... You have the cast of God's unfolding drama set. 
The players are God and humanity. We are part of God's story. And so the question of how God relates to us, how God relates to humanity, is incredibly important to understanding God's true story in the Bible that culminates in the coming of Jesus Christ and of His work. And so we're going to begin answering that question, how does God, how does God relate to humanity? What does that look like? Well, our culture has its own alternative stories about how God relates to human beings and what He is like. One of the alternative stories of our culture is that, that God is the, is the non-judgmental, indulgent grandfather. He's the Santa Claus in the sky. I mean, some of us, you know, we're, we're naughty sometimes, but, you know, there's always room on the nice list, right? So whether you're Ebenezer Scrooge or, or Walter Hobbs, uh, you may have just lost your way and you need a little Christmas cheer to get you, to get you back on the goods. You have a good side. We just got to get you there. And God's kind of like that. He's the grandfather who's always giving you money out of his pocket or, you know, uh, mints or whatever it is, anything you need. Of course, a spiritualized version of that looks something like, well, yeah, God is the big, is the one in the sky who forgives us and it's sort of his job to forgive us. So yeah, we do some bad stuff, but I mean, isn't God supposed to forgive us? Isn't that his job? Another alternative story about God in our culture, is that he is the transcendent genius architect. He's sort of the divine version of uh, Albert Einstein or Bill Gates. He designed this amazing operating system that we call the universe. He pushed the start button, and then he kind of walked away. And it's sort, of, it's sort of up to us to kind of figure it out from here. God is amazing, but he's so other. We can't approach him, and he's really far away, but he's kind of set up the universe for us to live in. Or there's the story in our world of God, the sort of God of karma. If you do good things, then good things will kind of come back to you at some point. And if you do bad things, then bad things will happen to you. Or, or God's sort of like the cosmic vending machine. Uh, if, if you do the stuff that he likes, like going to church, right? Maybe giving some of your money, maybe volunteering, generally being nice to people, not stealing anything valued over $10, it's generally going to go. He kind of owes you a good life if you've done all those things that he likes. Well, friends, I hope you understand that the Bible presents a very different picture of God, an alternative story to all those false stories of our world. A very different picture. And, and we see that picture from the very beginning in the book of Genesis. Remember who wrote Genesis? Uh, the, the big answer is God wrote Genesis. But God wrote all of the books of the Bible through human agency, and the person he used to write Genesis and the first five books of the Bible is Moses. And remember that Moses is writing to God's people Israel as they've just been delivered out of bondage and slavery, and they're just being constituted as a people, as a nation. Uh, they've been slaves, and now they're going to become this great nation, God's people. And they really don't know who they are. And so Moses, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is helping them, writing them to them to help establish their identity. And it's clear right from the beginning of Genesis, as it should be clear for us, that our identity cannot be understood apart from relationship 
to our Creator, to the God who made us. I mean, Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. There he is, the major player, the major cast member in the story of Scripture. In the beginning, God. And God initiates creation. Not because he's lonely. God dwelling eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is in perfect fellowship with himself, perfectly satisfied within his being, experiencing perfect joy, and fullness, and so he doesn't create because he's lonely, but out of the, the, the overflow of his goodness and out of the overflow of to make his glory known to creatures, God creates. And he creates people in his image, and he initiates relationship with them. And it is God who curses creation and punishes humanity when they rebel against him. And it is God who promises a remedy to their rebellion by promising a hero, the the promised seed that we talked about last week in Genesis 3, verse 15, who who would be bruised in his heel, but only as he crushes the head of the serpent. And it is God who judges the earth with a flood, but it is also God who saves Noah and his family. And it is God who repeats his mandate to creation, to Noah and his family, to be fruitful and to multiply and, and to fill the earth with his glory. And it is God in Genesis chapter 11 who judges the nations for exalting themselves above God. They're they're building this this tower and the city to their own glory. And so God punishes them by confusing their language. But all along the way, it is God who is in control. It is God who is initiating. We're going to see in today's text that it's God who takes the initiative in calling one man from among those nations to be the father of a special, a particular nation, which is going to be a means of blessing to all the nations. It's happening in Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. God is calling one man to be the father of a singular great nation that will be a means of blessing to all peoples to all the families of the earth. Look how God is initiating. Look back again at our text in Genesis 12. Now the Lord God said, notice that God is initiating relationship with with Abram. Abram has never heard, by the way, Abram, Abraham, same guy. I'm probably going to slip back and forth between the two of those. So disclaimer right from the beginning here. It is God who initiates relationship with Abram by speaking to him. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. See, Abraham was not necessarily what we would consider a good candidate to receive God's favor and for God to initiate a relationship with him. We read in Genesis or in Joshua uh, chapter 24 verse 2 that, that uh, Abram and his family, including his father Terah, uh, they were idol worshipers. 
Their hometown was Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur uh, there in what would be modern-day Iraq and what we call the Fertile Crescent in history uh, between the Tigris and the Euphrates, the sort of cradle of human civilization. Uh, He was living as a pagan. Uh, No doubt he worshipped the moon god of Ur, their their patron god, whose beard was made of precious stones and, and who rode on a bull. He didn't worship the Lord God, but God makes himself known to him. God makes himself known to Abram, and not because he sees great potential in him. This is God initiating relationship with someone who is considered his enemy up until this point, a seed of the serpent. And I think that's a great reminder for us even at this time of the year as we, as we think about reaching out to others with the truth of the gospel and of the truth of Christmas. Often we, we, we can, in our own minds, sort of categorize people as to whether they're, they're a good candidate for the gospel or not, right? Maybe there's that neighbor family that they're, they're such a great family and they like doing stuff together and they're, they're always willing to lend you things and they seem to have it all and they don't know Jesus, but if they just... They just knew Jesus, then they'd have it all. They just need that added on. They seem like they're great candidates for God's grace and for the gospel. But then there's that person at work, and she's kind of antagonistic to Christianity. It lives a very different lifestyle to you, and we tend to categorize her and say she's not a very good candidate for the gospel. I think God's call of Abraham reminds us that that none of us by nature are are quote-unquote very good candidates for the gospel. And yet the truth of God's word and the truth of what God wants to do to redeem people through Jesus Christ is so powerful that anyone is a candidate for God's grace. Abraham didn't look like that, but God said, you will become a great nation. I will bless you. Abraham, your name will be famous. And through you, Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. But it's only because God made the first move here. Again, showing that he is is the creator of heavens and earth, and therefore he is the king of the universe. He is the sovereign. He is the one who wears the crown. He has complete authority. It's in his covenant name. Notice that Moses writing here in Genesis 12 uses God's covenant name. We don't have record of anybody understanding God's covenant name until, until God until, until Moses later asked God who he was sending to captive Israel. But Moses writing later in the story can, can apply God's name because that's who he is. But God's name, his very name shows that he is sovereign and that he won't be defined by anyone. It's a very simple name, and yet it's a name so powerful that Orthodox Jews to this day will not repeat it for fear of breaking the third commandment and misusing God's name. His name is the being verb. I am. But that really says it all about our sovereign Lord. I am. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. No one is going to define me. I am the sovereign of the universe. And every time we see in our English translations the capitalized L-O-R-D, uh, all in caps, we know that that's the translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, which simply means I am, or I am who I am. That is God's covenant name. Friends, how, how do we respond to a God like that? 
completely sovereign. He will be who he will be. No one will define him. The sovereign of the universe of whom the psalmist says in Psalm 93, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It will never be moved. Your throne, God, is established from old. You are from everlasting. Mickey and I have been enjoying watching a mini-series on Netflix called The Crown. It is the story of Queen Elizabeth II, the reigning monarch in England, who is today, right now, not, it's not her birthday today, but she's 90 years old as of right now. And she became queen when she was 25. And there's a wonderful scene in the miniseries on the day where she learns that her father has died. It just boggles my mind. The moment her father, King George VI, dies, she is queen. She is the monarch of the land. She is the sovereign of the British Empire. And she finds that out, and they're making preparations, and her husband, Prince Philip, is in the room, and they're about to leave the room, and and Prince Philip's about to get up and leave the room, and one of the advisors stops him. You know why? Because no one leaves the room before the queen. No one leaves the room before the sovereign. You were, you continue to be her husband, but she is your sovereign now as your queen. And everywhere the queen goes, people bow, ladies curtsy. And they don't just call her your highness anymore. They call her your majesty. Majesty. And only the sovereign is called majesty. Friends, this is how we ought to respond to our sovereign. To the eternal divine sovereign from whom all the rulers of the earth derive their authority. Who sits, as it were, enthroned in the heavens, dwelling in unapproachable light. We ought to bow ourselves low. We ought to say to our creator, your majesty. Just as King David did. He said, Lord, who am I? Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? Because our God is not an indulgent grandfather who is infatuated with us. He's not an absentee landlord who will not hold us accountable. He's not a cosmic vending machine who owes us something for our good behavior. God, the sovereign of all creation, owes us nothing. And therefore, we ought to respond to his willingness to make himself known to us and to initiate relationship with us, his rebellious creatures. We ought to respond with with humility, with wonder, with awe. Like the hymn we sang, And can it be that, that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood that you would think of me, Lord? How can that be? We ought to bow low in repentance and making an honest assessment of ourselves in the presence of a holy God. We are are not a cute bundle of potentiality. By nature, we are God's enemies. But that is what is beautiful about the story of Advent. It is the story of a sovereign creator who boldly initiates action to restore his fallen creatures. 
How does God relate to us? How does he relate to fallen humanity? He takes the initiative. He makes the first move. The basis of God's relating to to his image bearers is as their creator king. That's the basis of it. Now, the way he relates to humanity, what is the manner, in what manner does God relate to his image bearers? Look again at our text, Genesis chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. Look, just look at that text. Run your eyes down it, and there is a word that is repeated five times in one form or another. A word that talks about how God relates to his image bearers. This is not a rhetorical question. What, what is that word? What is the word? Bless. He blesses them. Now, that's bless is a very churchy word, and I'm discovering it's a word that, that happens a lot outside the church. A lot of people on Facebook are saying they're blessed. I notice. I'm blessed. You can get pins that say blessed, T-shirts that say blessed on it. It's an often used and often repeated word, and I wonder if we understand the definition and the meaning of it biblically. To, to be blessed is to be enriched. It's to, be, it's to cause to be caused to prosper. It's to be caused to flourish. But ultimately, it is to receive God's favor. That's the greatest blessing. That's the greatest means of flourishing. Edmund Clowney, in his, his very excellent book, The Unfolding Mystery, puts it this way. He says, Our understanding of blessing has faded with our awareness of God's presence. Blessing is the pronouncing of God's favor. It includes the gifts that God gives as evidence of his love and his favor, but blessing is more than what God gives. It's about the giver. It is the bond of favor that that joins God's people with him. That's the greatest blessing that can be promised anyone in the Bible. And it's, it's God's plan from the beginning that, that, peop, that God's people would be in relationship with him, that he would be their God and they would be his people. That's what, that's what he wanted in the very beginning. And so to live in a world that is cursed is to live in a world that is under the banishment of God's full blessing and favor. Look again at our text and notice who God promises to bless and how He promises to bless them. First of all, God promises to bless Abram. He says, I will bless you, Abram. Just before that, up in the end of chapter 11, we see that Abram is from Ur of the Chaldees and he's basically an idol worshiper and that's who God chooses to bless. How is he going to bless Abram? By leading him. Go. Go to the place where I will lead you. Go to this unseen land where I will make you a great nation. Now, if you want to be not even a great nation, but just any kind of nation, uh, there's at least two things you need. And it's not a flag and really cool Olympic uniforms. You need land, you need real estate, and you need people. And Abraham and his wife Sarai had neither. They were wandering nomads. They didn't have any of their own land. 
they were, at this point, he is 75 and she is 65. So she's, she's barren. She's not able to have children, but at 65, who is? And God says, I'm going to bless you. That, that's how I'm going to bless you. And I will give you a name and I will cause other people to be blessed if they favor you. And I will, I, if, they treat, if they even treat you lightly, I will curse them. That's who and how God is going to bless. Secondly, who and how. God says, who is he going to bless? I'm going to bless all the families, all the nations of the earth. Those nations who, if you look again at the beginning of chapter 11, it's a story of the Tower of Babel. And what's going on there? That the nations, they don't want to disperse as they've been told by God that they're to do. They want to gather together. And they want to build a city with a great tower for what purpose? To glorify God? To make His name great? No. To make a name for themselves. And they're going to waterproof this thing. So that if God decides to do that flood stuff again, we're going to make it through. And God says, you nations of the world who are gathering yourselves to make a name for yourself, to, to create civilization apart from me, I'm going to promise to bless you. I'm going to promise to bring blessing to you. How? Through Abram. In particular, through the descendants of this one man who would become a holy nation, God's people. One nation commissioned to bless all the nations. And we see in the story of Scripture that that is the nation of Israel. It is the sons and daughters. It is the descendants of Father Abraham. And so how could we describe the way, the manner that God is relating to humanity here? In what way is he relating to them? Is he relating to them? Well, he's, he's favoring them. He's showing blessing toward those who don't deserve it. He is pouring out his lavish kindness on people who deserve punishment. God is promising to make his enemies his friends. We have a word for that, don't we? The Bible has a word for that. What is it when God lavishes his kindness and his grace, not on just on undeserving people, but on people who deserve just the opposite? What do we call that, friends? That's God's grace. That's God's grace. The way that God chooses to relate toward humanity is by grace, by sovereign grace, the grace of the sovereign of the universe. The sovereign grace is, is on display right from the beginning of the story of the Bible. It's on display in the garden when the man and the woman defy God's word, which was for their benefit, and they choose self-rule over God's rule. God's grace is on display. Instead of leaving them to perish, God seeks them out, and he covers their shame by providing animal skins to cover them, replacing their own flimsy attempts to cover themselves. And God's grace is on display as he makes a promise to provide a redeemer, the promised seed who will crush the head of God's enemy, who will decisively defeat the serpent. And now here we are with Abraham many generations later, and God is repeating and expanding on that promise that he made in the garden. 
about the seed of the woman, the coming hero, the redeemer, the savior. And he says to Abraham, he makes a promise to him. Notice, notice the, uh, the prepositions in the Bible are really important. That la- the end of verse 3, he says, and in you, Abram, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And there it is. Abram is part of the generational line of the seed, of God's hero, of the Savior. That seed is going to descend. He's going to be Abraham's seed as well. He's the seed of the woman. He's the seed of Abram. He's going to descend through Abram. But it won't be easy. The next several chapters in the story are are just about the, the difficulty of waiting for the promised seed, waiting for the promised son. And it wasn't easy for Abram. He, he doubted at times. And so God in Genesis 15 does something amazing. He establishes his covenant with Abram. This was crazy weird ceremony to read about it in Genesis 15. God says, take some animals, a heifer, a goat, a couple of, couple of birds, and slice them in two. Lots of blood, and put one half here, and one half here, and another half, and another half, and another half, and make sort of a a bloody path. So Abram did that. And all through the day, Abram, it says, is literally swatting away the buzzards that want to eat the carcasses. And then at the end of the day, he falls into a deep, dark sleep. And Abraham sees a vision of a pot of fire and, and, a, and a flaming torch passing between the rows of the slaughtered animals. And what he's seeing is the acting out of a covenant being made and established. A covenant the way that many people made covenants in those days that said, we're making a covenant, we're making a binding agreement with one another, and basically we're both going to walk down the middle between these two halves of an animal and basically saying, if I don't keep my side of the bargain, then may what happened to these animals happen to me. And this often happened uh, between a, a ruler, somebody in power, and somebody who was his subject, his vassal. Only Abraham doesn't pass between the halves of the animals. Only God does in the form of this fiery flame. And what the point is that God is going to make sure the covenant is kept. God is going to ensure that his relationship with humanity that he is writing in blood is going to come come to fruition. He is going to take responsibility for both sides of the covenant. And God did. Years later... Abraham, now 100 years old, Sarah, 90, gives birth to Isaac. His name means laughter. Finally, the child of promise has arrived. The line of the seed would continue. Or would it? About the time that Isaac is a young teenager... Abram, now named Abraham, again hears God's voice. And again, God says, go. Go. Only this time, take your son. God is specific. Bring with you your son, 
your only son, the son whom you love. It's the son of promise. And God says, offer him as a burnt offering, a symbol of complete devotion. And Genesis 22 says that Abram was obedient and that he was right at the point where he was about to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. The very location where Solomon would many years later build the temple. A place of prayer for the nations. A place of blood sacrifice for sin. And Abram was about to sacrifice his son on that very spot when God stops him and makes this declaration. Now I know, Abram, that you fear God. You reverence me seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And graciously, in Isaac's place, God provides an innocent animal to bleed and die as his substitute. Fast forward 2,000 years. Within sight of that very spot, within the shadow of the temple, at Mount Calvary, the son of promise, the seed of the woman, the source of blessing for the nations, the innocent Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world would bleed and die. What happens there is described in John's Gospel 3, 16, a verse we all know well. God so loved the world. God loved the world in this way. This is how God loved the world, the nations, all of us in rebellion against Him. This is how He loved the world. He gave His Son, His one and only Son. So that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. There it is. God's grace extended to to all peoples. Whoever believes in him, all the families of the earth will be blessed in the seed of Abraham. Jesus, the Savior, whose advent we celebrate. It's no wonder the Apostle Paul calls our text, Genesis 12, the gospel. Listen to this in, you might want to turn there, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church, a group of Christians who, who are on the verge of ditching the gospel, the true gospel. And he can't help to, but talk about the gospel without bringing in this promise to Abraham. And he writes in Galatians 3 verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Notice how the sons and the daughters, the descendants of Abraham, are being defined here. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, literally the nations by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, "'In you shall all the nations be blessed.'" So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, 
the man of faith. And he goes on to say, For all who rely on the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all that is written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. That was the story of Abraham's life. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them will live by them. Do, do, do. Faith says, done, done, done. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. So that, and here it is again, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the nations so that we might, we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Faith. Advent is a time of renewing our faith, of asking God for fresh faith. If you don't know the Jesus of Christmas, it's asking God to give you the gift of faith that you might trust in Him as your Lord and Savior. In our text, we see Abraham as the model of faith. God called, verse 1, chapter 12 of Genesis, Verse 4, Abram went because he was transformed, because God had given him the gift of faith, and he trusted in his sovereign Lord, his creator, who had made him the promise of a Savior. See, Genesis chapter 12 is really the story of Abram's conversion from being a pagan, from being an enemy of God to becoming God's friend through faith. And so Abram becomes the model of faith for all of Scripture. The righteous shall live by faith. Abraham, the man of faith. And so Advent is a season of hearing the call of the gospel and responding in faith. At Advent, we see God's sovereign grace on display through the coming of Jesus, God's incarnate Son, the, and, and that means that we can't take Christmas and somehow domesticate it. Uh, we may not limit the significance of Christmas simply to the giving and receiving of gifts or Christmas cards. We can't limit the significance of Christmas to drinking overpriced coffee in bright colored mugs. We can't limit the significance of Christmas to, to decorating trees or even to the nostalgic feelings that we all experience when we think about a little baby placed in a manger. You see, celebrating Jesus' birth goes hand in glove with celebrating his whole life and his death and his glorious resurrection and his kingly ascension to the right hand of God the Father. Celebrating Christmas means celebrating Jesus' entire mission. That is how old Simeon, filled with the Holy Spirit, received the baby Jesus. That text was read earlier. I want to read it again for us. Here is Simeon, revealed by the Spirit that, that he was not going to go. He was not going to depart until he had seen the Lord's Christ, until he had seen the consolation of Israel, the comfort of God's people. And when he does... Listen to how he praises God. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, 
according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation in the person of Jesus, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the nations and glory for your people Israel. Friends, Christmas is a call to that very same mission. We have the same call that Abraham had. Notice how Abraham's call was to, to leave his, his, his country and his family, and, and it just got more intimate and more close to home as God called him. It's a call to leave the familiar. Advent reminds us of God's mission to redeem a people and to restore a fallen creation. And it's a reminder that we are called to be part of that mission. The Great Commission begins with the same word as Abram's commission. Go, therefore. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. You see, the nation of Israel served its primary purpose. God called Abraham. He made him into a great, eventually a physical nation that served its purpose in delivering the Messiah. And now all of those who are of faith are the children, are the descendants of Abraham. And we have the very same call that Abraham had. We have been blessed as God's people in order to be a blessing to the nations. We have been blessed in order to bring the blessing of the gospel to our neighbors. Peter helps us to understand that when he writes, but you, you, we are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are the holy nation. We are the people for God's own possession that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, we didn't look like very good prospects for God's grace. But now, we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy, God's sovereign grace. That is the message of Advent, and that is the mission of Advent that all of us are being sent on. To God's glory and to the blessing of the nations and our neighbors. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, if we just pause for a moment to consider your greatness and your glory in your majesty, in comparison to the darkness of our own hearts apart from your grace, we realize that none of us, none of us in that sense were very good candidates to become your children. But God, out of the overflow and the, the, the lavish flow of your goodness and mercy, you have made all of those who trust in Jesus your people. Lord, thank you for that blessing. 
the primary blessing above all blessings, to know you. It says in the scriptures, if you're going to boast about anything, boast that you know the Lord, that he has made himself known to you. God, that is the greatest blessing that any person could experience. And so we thank you and we praise you for that this morning. And we recognize that just as you blessed Abraham with your presence and you redeemed him and drew him to yourself, that you did that in order to send him out to be a blessing, to, 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 to be a mediator, to bring the presence of Jesus to a world that needs it. And God, we recognize that you're calling us as your people to do the very same thing. And Lord, we recognize that during this season of the year, we can have some, some opportunities to spend time with people and have conversations that we might not uh, during the other 11 or so months of the year. And so, God, we pray that you'd fill us with the joy of knowing the Savior whose advent, whose coming we celebrate at Christmas time, and that that would overflow in our conversations, in our, in our expressions of love, in honor of you, the one who first loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name, the seed of Abraham. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.